This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, October 22nd, 2019, episode 76, concerning a glimpse into 15th century school life. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. It's been a while since I last got to say that intro. Uh, The show has been on an extended vacation since July, and boy, I hope it had a good relaxing time, because I am exhausted. Uh, I moved to a new town and started a new job, and that job has included teaching two classes I haven't taught before, requiring making all new materials and lessons, Uh, and though I've been teaching for over a decade as a grad student and then as an adjunct, This is the first time I'm teaching a genuine full load of classes, Uh, indeed more than the standard full load. So it's been a period of a lot of adjustment, Um, adjustments that are ongoing and far from settled into any kind of balance yet. Uh, I was kind of looking forward to working nine to five with office hours and everything. Um, I wasn't quite prepared for working five to nine (laughs) a.m. to p.m., And that's not every day, of course, but it has been multiple days weekly, uh, and it's usually more like 8 to midnight, but same difference. Um, And it will get better, I have to believe. And there are reasons to expect it to get better, uh, but it's left me with precious little time to do much of anything else. When I pulled up my outline for this episode, the intended date of release I had typed in was Friday, September 6th, and here we are. But I am absolutely still committed to this show. Uh, That said, we'll probably have to ramp back up slowly, and it may take a couple more months before we get back to something approaching regularity, or as close to regularity as we've ever approached. But I appreciate your patience, and I hope you're as keen to dive back into some medieval texts as I am. Our text today is topical to my life, and uh, at least a month ago was probably topical to some of yours. Um, This is a back-to-school text. We've heard one brief selection from this text before as a supplement to another school text we had, the Labyrinthus of Eberhard the German, way back in episode 10. Today's text is a collection of grammar school exercises, little descriptive passages or scenes given in English for students to translate into Latin. The collection was put together by an unknown schoolmaster of Magdalen School in Oxford, probably in the 1490s. There are a few references to contemporary events in the exercises that help us pin down that date. It's included in a manuscript in the British Library, Arundel 249, uh, where it appears alongside other grammatical texts and documents relating to Magdalen College, and it's been published under the title A 15th Century Schoolbook, edited by William Nelson. In the introduction to his edition, Nelson explains that these passages were composed to help students learn Latin grammar and vocabulary, uh, especially to facilitate speaking Latin. As such, the English passages given to the students for translation into Latin cover aspects of their daily lives. It's not quite at the level of a modern conversational French or Spanish course, but the concept is similar. This genre of Latin textbook is known as vulgaria, It's focused on common Latin expression rather than literary expression. The Vulgaria style of exercises represents a bit of a shift in the pedagogy of the grammar schools of the late medieval period from the methods of earlier times, where examples were drawn from or based on classical literary sources, 
which no doubt contributed to the difficulty students had with learning Latin, and how the grammar of Donatus acquired an epithet like the font of tears. Indeed, Magdalen College, to which this grammar school was attached, was a nucleus for grammar studies in the late 15th century, and a number of its scholars are responsible for writing the Latin textbooks that went on to be the first ones widely printed in England as we enter the Renaissance. They embraced a philosophy of trying to make Latin learning easier and more attractive to students, and this is reflected in the way the exercises in this vulgaria address everyday schoolboy concerns. And as far as our text is concerned, the students are all boys, which historically was certainly the overwhelming norm, though not the absolute rule. We encounter some interesting exceptions in the records, but not in the schoolroom portrayed by our schoolmaster here. And that single-sex schoolroom is probably entirely true to the schoolmaster's own experience and the experience of many medieval and early modern schoolmasters. Uh, but this little picky issue of representation is a reminder that however vivid the details of the scenes are and the psychology they portray, they are the teacher's perceptions of his students. We should take its accuracy with more than a grain of salt. But that said... The schoolboy who emerges from these passages is a multifaceted character. There are several moments where we see the child realizing lessons about bad habits and bad behavior, and these have a whiff of the after-school special clinging to them. Uh, you can feel the adult behind the mask of a child wagging his finger and saying, and that's why you should be studying instead of goofing off. But there are other moments where the student's desires to sleep in, or go carousing, or get revenge on a bully, or other impulses that one wouldn't expect a teacher to condone, are also represented without any obvious moralizing judgment attached. So I think you do get a meaningful glimpse into that 15th century schoolroom, uh, as well as the boarding houses where many of the students lived, and the streets of Oxford. There might be some wishful thinking or projection from the teacher onto the child character he's creating, but it's married to first-hand observation and experience. Nelson, our editor, describes the author as, quote, "...a perceptive and sensitive teacher endowed with literary talent, a sense of humor, and the ability to sympathize with the minds of his boys, who succeeded in producing a convincing, often delightful picture of the life of the early Tudor period." End quote. And what were the outlines of that life for our representative schoolboy as he emerges as a kind of composite character from these exercises? Well, broadly speaking, he is a child who comes from a wealthy but not a noble family. He attended primary school in his town until the age of 11 or so, when he was sent away to board at the Maudlin School, where he would have lived in group housing overseen by a krenzer, or house tutor. These krenzers appear several times as characters in the exercises. And as we talked about in our episodes on the Labyrinthus of Eberhard, corporal punishment looms large in the student's mind and is presented as very much a part of the daily life of learning, with beatings coming from both the master and the krenzer, alongside some fisticuffs with schoolmates. One does not discern an image of great decorum in these school environs, and the history of medieval student riots in Oxford helps confirm this impression. But alongside this violence and posturing, you also get moments of more interior emotion and gentleness, feelings of friendship, of homesickness, and longing to see one's parents, of secretly keeping a bunny in your room as a pet. 
What we're about to hear are selections from among the 400-odd exercises in the manuscript. I'll be pulling items out of a subset which Nelson has classified as primarily relating to the schoolroom. The manuscript itself employs very little notion of categorization, and outside of a few related passages being clustered here and there, there's no recognizable ordering principle. So, since editors will edit, uh, Nelson has reorganized the exercises into topical categories in his edition, and we'll probably come back and dip into some of the other areas of a Tudor schoolboy's life sometime in the future. Of the ones we'll hear in a moment, most are written in the voice of a student, but sometimes, as in the case of the first few we start with, the exercises present general commentary, uh, and sometimes they even speak in the voice of the teacher, and in a few cases, they render a little dialogue scene between two people. These exercises are written in late 15th century English, which, when given modern pronunciation, is not too difficult to follow. Sometimes the syntax is a bit different from how we'd phrase things now, and there are a few archaic and obsolete words, which I'll simply insert quick glosses for as we encounter them, but this is otherwise not a translated text. This is the English of Oxford in the 1490s. One word I'll gloss up front, uh, because it appears a number of times, is can. This is can as in to know, etymologically related to canny and cunning. Uh, in fact, etymologically, it's related to know as well through Indo-European roots, with the K-N of cano being the clue there, being parallel to the C-N in can. Uh, and you still find can kicking around as a dialect term here and there. So, let's go back to school into the classroom of an anonymous master of Maudlin School, Oxford. Some scholars there be, but there are very few of them, that have good wits and keep still in remembrance that as they hear. And some have a good perceiving with them, such there be many, but they forget more in a day than they learned in three. Some there are that be so dull, which without great labor cannot can the least thing. But they that have good wits and diligent must be cunning, whether they will or nay, and the other with difficulty. I have no joy or dent to teach children, and namely dullards or corrigals, that is, those without spirit. For that one, it is certain, though he will learn, cannot. The other, though he can, will not. And scholars that have good wits would give themselves to their books. They could not choose, but they must needs be cunning. And so we see it daily proved in them that so doth. For many there be that have noble wits, and trust in their wit too much, and put no diligence to it in the world. And therefore they be deceived oftentimes at the conclusion, and they that be dull do exceed them. Meseemeth there be many scholars nowadays in Oxford, the which be of very sharp wit. Notwithstanding, they put not their minds to their books, nor to other virtuous occupation which should be to them great worship, and to all their friends great comfort. 
Is it not pity that children, and many of them the which have quick wits, be too given to japes and trifles, the which, if they would give them to their books, should have no peers? Many of the scholars be of so sharp a wit that they take shortly all things which be taught them, which it should be a great pleasure for the master to teach, if they would labor withal. None of all my fellows hath a quicker wit than I, yet for all that, without great calling on and often beating, I cannot learn. Be a man endowed with never so great a wit, without great diligence, he shall never move to come to great cunning. They that be somewhat dull of wit ought to recompense their idleness with diligence and labor, for there was never man so dull, nor nothing so hard for any man, but with diligence and labor he may overcome it. For man's wit is like a field, that the better he is dressed and tilled, the lustier he bringeth forth. Therefore no man may excuse him by dullness. The master knoweth what a slow wit I am of. For, howbeit I profit but little, if I keep well in remembrance such things as I have learned, I shall content him. I have marvel what it is that for all the exercise that ye have in the making of Latin, ye are nothing the better, where I am sure that some other hath come to much more thrift with less labor. My father may be glad that ever he begot me, for and if I live the age of Malvern Hills, I shall yield him a fool still. And yet, if he send not the sooner for me, that is, does not call me home soon, I shall shame him, my masters, and all the kin that I am come of. It is better for the master to teach one hundred well-conditioned scholars and virtuous than twenty evil-conditioned. For they that be of good conditions will bear away such things as be taught, not compelled, and they that be forward the more pain they have, the less they take heed. Our children be so wanton that if they may have their own will, they care not whether ever they thrive or never. When I remember with myself the life and disposition of some men, I see great diversity among them. Some a man may see that be given to study and to cunning, also have great honesty in their living. Other, contrarywise, be far from these conditions, the which if they have all things found of their friends, yet they live unhonestly, taking no heed neither to body nor to raiment. It should be a pleasure to the master to teach such scholars as be quick-witted and well-endeavor themselves and leave their barbarous ways and bear away such things as be elegantly taught them. But some be so unthriftily disposed that they be given altogether to plays and sports and idleness, and such be to be compelled to their books with sharp stripes. It is hard for any man to know the condition of such that be under correction and do well by the reason of the master, but if they come once to their own liberty, a man may know wonderfully an unthrifty from a good one. I will begin from henceforward to follow the best of all my fellows, that I may get the cunning and also the good name that they have by their diligence. Notwithstanding, the master thinketh otherwise, because I have been of so untoward disposition herebefore. It is a common saying that children have most quick wits when they be fasting, 
but I find the contrary, for that that I learn in the morning is soon gone out of mind, for night study doth me most good. It is a world to see the ready wits of some men in things to do, that for all the weightiness of matters there is nothing to seek with them. As for me, I am of another disposition, for which whensoever any weighty thing is to do, I am so unready that I wot never in the world where to turn me. As soon as I am come into the school, this fellow goeth to make water, and he goeth out to the common draught, or privy. Soon after, another asketh license that he may go drink. Another calleth upon me that he may have license to go home. These and other such layeth my scholars for excuse, oftentimes, that they may be out of the way. I marvel greatly what heed your crinsers take to you, for today ye be so many that there is unneath, or scarcely, one place to sit upon, and all the week afore the one half of the school wanted. It is pity that so dainty a day, and also so fair, should be spent in sad, or serious, matters, rather than in japes. The master should do us all great pleasure today if he would give us leave to go make us merry this afternoon while the weather is so fair, for it is doubtful if hereafter there would be so great a temperateness of weather. Yesterday I took my pleasure in the town, walking to and fro into the castle and about. But today, when I came to school, I was welcomed on the new fashion. That is, in other words, with a beating. Would it not anger a man to be lied upon of this fashion? They say that I keep a daw, or crow, in my chamber. But, Ewis, they lie falsely upon me, for it is but a poor coney, or rabbit. I am weary of thy company, for there is no shrewd turn done here, but thou liest the fault on me. Also, the master believeth thee. There is no unhappy deed done here among us, but all the fault is put upon me, though I be not guilty. It bodeth me not to deny it. I had rather in good faith die than I would suffer these wrongs daily without a cause. Thomas, I thank thee, for I was present and stood by thee when thou complainest of me to my crinser. John, methinketh that there is no man more ungentle, nother more uncourteous to me than thou art, for alway thou complainest upon me without a cause to my crinser. After my mind, I have not deserved thy evil will, but rather thy friendship, for I have been alway very diligent to do thee a pleasure. Nowadays, this is the manner. If one take away anything from me, I will take shortly again from him, other his cap or his knife or something else. But this is not well. It were better, or more convenient, when a man doth me wrong, that I should speak fair unto him, and beseech him as heartily as I can to leave or cease, and if he leave not, then it is best to show it to the master or to his usher. It is a noble sport for me to hear the facing, that is, the swaggering, and brawling of these boys when they shall be accused of custos, that is, by the monitors, and to see how subtle every man is in defending himself. 
I may blame thee, William, for thine unkindness that thou hast kept my book so long. What, what gear is this? Whose paper is this? What would ye? It is mine. While ye have so good stuff or store, I trust ye will give me on leave. Nay, for good, ye may think yourself well entreated or well dealt withal if ye get so much as half one. Fellow, meseemeth that thou hast our Latin and our verses, and if thou give me copy of them, thou shalt have my favor. There is nothing grieveth me so much as for to be kept alway within the walls, and that I can have nothing after my pleasure. I have played long and forget much. The little children that were set to school with me be gone afore me far. Therefore, I must see or take heed that I may overtake them. Meseemeth thou art more meet to sit in a suitor's or shoemaker's shop with a suitor's bristle than in a school with a writing pen. Every man prevaileth in their learning save I, and be worthy of praising or to be praised. I, unhappy fellow, cannot tell what good I do, clean without all virtue and all goodness well nigh. If thou come so slowly forward to learn grammar, it shall be long ere thou shalt thrive. My master prayeth you to take mine excuse at this time, for I did his errands yesternight hither and thither in the town. We be so let or hindered, what with going forth of town and running on errands at home, that it is no marvel though we thrive but small in our learning. My master sent me to inquire a certain man of whom I should ask the keys of the library to be brought unto him and I could not find him nowhere. I came again to my master, and then I missed my Latin book, but I cannot tell whether I lost him running or left him in the tavern. So, that was a chance to eavesdrop on a 14th century schoolroom, uh, at least as perceived by one of its schoolmasters. In that last exercise, it feels very quaint to hear what sounds like our imaginary student calling his Latin book him, you know, gendering a book in a way that kind of personifies it. But, disappointingly, the truth behind this little anthropomorphized textbook is that calling it him is just a linguistic artifact, uh, revealing older forms of our pronouns. In the 14th century, him was in use as the neuter object case for the third-person singular pronoun alongside hit. And his was in use as the neuter possessive singular as late as the 17th century, so his could be found where we would expect its today. As for the rest, uh, there's so much in here that's recognizable as perennial school feelings, uh, feelings that have probably been felt for as long as something resembling school has existed. We have the child's keen awareness of the differences in performance among students and the anxiety that surrounds that. We have the frustration at being stuck in a lesson when the weather is so nice outside. 
we have, close to my heart, the Night Owl, who learns better reading late into the wee hours and is useless in the cold light of morning. We have stragglers and dawdlers and students who abuse their restroom privileges. We have attendance problems. It's all remarkably fresh and very old at the same time. All right, our mystery word this episode is... Well, if I just say it, it will hardly be a mystery. Let me spell it instead. The word is X-A-L. What exotic language is a word X-A-L from? Well, Middle English. And this strange word is shall, as in I shall be free. So in fact, we have less a mystery word and more of a mystery spelling. In the 15th century, we have a few texts, most notably the Coventry Mystery Plays, where the letter X is used to indicate the SH sound, or the voiceless post-alveolar fricative, SH. In the Coventry Plays manuscript, you also find XULD for should, and XOWYN for shoven, to shove. But that's not the end of the versatility of the character X. It also appears as an abbreviation for Christ in many a manuscript. Well, sort of. Here we run into an issue of typographical semantics. Because, of course, what that X represents, as indeed it still represents in the abbreviation Xmas, uh, that X stands in for the Greek letter chi, the first letter of Christos. So, is it an X or is it a chi? The pedantic typographer would insist that, no, it is an X. It is a fundamentally different character, a different letter form than a bona fide chi. That same typographer would also tell you that what you have just typed in your email is not a minus sign, it is just a hyphen. The minus sign is a different character. You can go into the symbols menu and insert a true minus sign, and if you were professionally typesetting a book, you would absolutely be expected to do so. But that's within the world of professional typography. In everyday life, it's less the exact specifications of the character design that matter, and more the intent. I may use the X on my keyboard, or in the motor memory of my handwriting, to communicate chi. It may be an X, but it communicates chi, and in that case, doesn't that just make it a chi? You start to get into tree-falling-in-a-forest territory with this sort of thing. But there is a real issue behind this seemingly trivial distinction. In our day, we've run into trouble with intent and design in emojis. The Unicode Consortium defines what an emoji is supposed to represent and how it should be depicted, but there's room for individual graphic designers to produce rather different images for the same emoji. What the emoji looks like on your device or your application and its installed emoji set could be markedly different from how it looks on someone else's device or in a different application. And that can become a problem when people start using emojis metaphorically, beyond what the Unicode standard signification is. Apple has run into issues with this, most notably with their redesign of the pistol emoji, which they render as a green plastic water pistol, while other platforms display more realistic-looking handguns. So someone accustomed to an iPhone might construct a little emoji cartoon or rebus with what they think is a playful water pistol, and the Android user who receives it sees the cold blue steel of a 22 automatic. Apple also ran into trouble with a short-lived redesign of their peach emoji, 
much like the eggplant emoji, the peach has taken on a metaphorical or analogical meaning with its rounded cheeks and distinctive cleft. So when Apple's new peach minimized the cleft and reduced its resemblance to a pair of buttocks, they were suddenly robbing the peach of its richer visual and now conventional symbolism. Needless to say, this redesign did not last long. One has to imagine that any effort to reposition the eggplant into a less suggestive posture would be met with similar outcry. Though I also have to just note that everything I've seen online unequivocally says the peach is used to mean butt. Uh, there's a longer-standing artistic and literary association with what the peach represents uh, that makes it even more of a partner to the old eggplant, uh, I'm surprised that sending peach emojis doesn't result in more mixed messages. Anyway, enough with the childish schoolboy antics, eh? I'm hoping against hope to be back with one more normal episode before our annual Halloween anniversary episode, but candidly, we'll just have to see how it goes, and looking at the date as I record this, uh, it's looking pretty unlikely. Uh, I am also still in the slow and staggered process of recording the new audiobook for our Patreon supporters, and that looks like it's coming together for a Christmas release date. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or it's been so long I'm struggling to remember how this goes. Uh, Twitter, email, you can reach me by email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com and check out that website for more information, including references for this and every episode. You can support us on Patreon by searching for Medieval Death Trip there or going straight to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. I especially want to thank my Patreon patrons for their patience in this late summer lull. Uh, hopefully autumn will slowly get us back into our stride. Winter and spring should be much better. So, happy back to school, everyone, or, well, happy midterms, as the case may be, and thanks for listening.